As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to B2B Growth. I'm Logan Lyles with Sweetfish Media. I'm joined today by Andrew Hawley. He's the CMO over at Binder. Andrew, welcome to the show. How are you today, sir? I'm fantastic. It's great to be with you, Logan. Well, thanks again for joining us, Andrew. We've been asking some fun questions to get to know our guests a little bit. And one of the things I would love to know, Andrew, have you picked up any fun or interesting hobbies during this time of quarantine and self-isolation? Oddly, I would actually say I've dropped a few. And I don't know why this is. So music is something I'm very interested in. I play instruments. But I had picked up the electric bass to play with my son who plays like a guitar. I've been doing less of that. I had also intended to um, start meditating. I didn't do that. And I've kind of stopped doing my in-home workouts. So I find actually I'm having trouble finding the scope to do some of those things I'd like to do. The only constant has been bike riding. I've I've been bike riding a lot, and I think maybe that's been a really good uh, release for me. Yeah. Has that been outdoors actual bike riding, or are you one of those Peloton fans in, inside the house? For me, it's all about being outside, man. I'd rather be biking through the hail than inside on a Peloton. Pelotons are super cool, but for me, a lot of it's just being out in the fresh air, especially because we're, we're behind the screen enough, right, at work. Yep. I don't know that I want to yep. be behind a screen when I'm bike riding. Yeah, yeah, I hear you to each his own there, but I, I tend to lean that direction with you, Andrew, especially out here in Colorado where I'm at, where we've got a lot of, of fresh air. Well, we're going to be talking about the hype over personalization, the, the back and forth that, that everybody has been on here, and really, where are we at with personalization today as B2B marketers, and what are we going to do about it? So to kick off that conversation, Andrew, why is this something for yourself as a B2B marketer that you're so passionate? about speaking to today? Sure. I think it starts just, I've just been a, you know, B2B marketing junkie. I've, I've worked in the industry for a long time, you know, for MarTech vendors and part of that ecosystem. And for the longest time, really been part of that 20 year push to get better, more personalized. Um, but when I came to Binder and I saw the tremendous creativity happening on kind of the content asset creative side, it really kind of opened my eyes to that. And when in talking to our customer base, we see the growing emphasis on that, that really kind of awakened this self-admitted data junkie to the power of creative and to start to look at where it's all going. 
Yeah, absolutely. So let's set the stage a little bit. Uh, I know that there was some some research that you've pointed to recently that really kind of shows us, one, how marketers are thinking about data and personalization, and then also how the folks that we're reaching on the other end are, are buyers, regardless of B2B or B2C, how they're feeling about the use of that data. Give us a little bit there as we set the stage. Yes, you bet. Well, you know, naturally, once you start to kind of think about something, either the first or second thing we do is jump on Google and start finding out what have others found out about it. So when we started thinking, hey, you know, you know, I think the high water mark of personalization might be upon us. You go and search, and have others been looking at this? And like right up at the top of the search results, it was remarkable. I saw um, just back in December that Gartner actually, not exactly someone who tries to be on the very leading edge of things, right? Gartner predicted that 80% of marketers will abandon personalization efforts by 2025. And that was kind of like, wow. I mean, Gartner, as you know, makes a lot of money doing good work, but you know, supporting the efforts of technology vendors to get their message across. So for them to come out with that, I was like, hmm, okay, maybe we're on to something. You know, on the, on the consumer side, and, and one of the four reasons, you know, I think we're, we've seen this high watermark of personalization and micro-segmenting, you know, you referenced the personalization. It, you don't have to look too far to see evidence of, you know, consumer annoyance at minimum and perhaps even consumer backlash at what some people call surveillance marketing. Are you familiar with that term? Logan. I haven't quite heard it uh, uh, put exactly that way, but unpack that a little bit for folks who haven't heard surveillance marketing. It's just, um, it's the fact that our systems are tracking data about us constantly. We're constantly under surveillance. At least it used to be when we were just on the computer. Now it's whenever we're carrying our phone. And now, do you have, do you have Alexa in your house? I do not, but I have a Google Home speaker. So, so now it's even... Yeah. We we're not on the screen. We we're just talking. We're being surveilled and yeah. people are becoming aware of this. And then they notice it when it intrudes into marketing. And I think just about everybody I know has a story of surveillance marketing or personalization gone wrong. Do, do you have one of these like annoying? Yeah, I was sitting, I was sitting in an airport and struck up a conversation while I was waiting for a flight at, at the restaurant in the airport. And the gentleman I was talking to, I mentioned, Hey, I'm in marketing. I work for a podcast agency. Forget what he does. I think some sort of, some sort of sales. And we got to talking about marketing naturally, because that's where it kind of goes. And he mentioned, you know, I started seeing these ads for a new uh, F-250 Ford pickup truck. I had not touched Google. I had not typed in anything. And he said, then I thought about it. Well, we've had an Amazon Echo in our house for a couple of weeks, right? And he was like looking back over his shoulder as he told this story. Exactly. For me, it's Hawaiian shirts. I searched for that once. I bought one three or four years ago. Those ads still follow me. I get ads for compression socks. My wife has had a sore foot. Like, you know, how have they connected? No doubt through my family's IP address. So, you know, we all have those anecdotal stories but you roll them up, you see, you know, I saw a study recently, over 75% of consumers uh, think that most forms of ad personalization are at least somewhat creepy. And it's not just that we find that increasingly we're expressing that. Uh, it's anytime this goes wrong, what is the first person thing people do? You take to social media and say, I can't believe it. I just got this, this, and this. You know, the survey that I said that I saw had about 10 to 20% of people reporting on social media when this happened. So it's not just that the ads don't work. Consumers increasingly calling brands out for getting this balance wrong. 
And then the other way that the consumers are expressing their dislike of these tactics is through legislation, right? In Europe, Europe moved first with GDPR, which almost all of your audience will be familiar with. And now coming online is the California Consumer Protection Act. So, you know, GDPR is becoming legislative, uh, which is going to increase costs for doing this, reducing the scope and the data we can use. And again, one of three or four reasons why I think we are at that high watermark of personalization and micro-segmentation. Yeah, one of the things that was interesting I saw in some of the data you cited as we were going back and forth before this episode, Andrew, was that, you know, we talked about the the pushback from from buyers. Gartner looking at, hey, personalization, uh, there, there may be an end to the way that we've been we've been trending, as you mentioned, a high watermark, but still a lot of marketers are saying, they're saying at least that personalization is leading to results. It is driving positive impact. Why, why is there some of that disconnect in the space right now, do you think? Sure. Well, uh, two things. First of all, relevance is good. There's no disputing that, right? When we get, for example, an advertisement for an ink toner cartridge for our printer, and we're about empty, like that's a good thing. So I think being relevant is good. Being targeted is good. We're not going to retreat from that. Again, my, my, my assertion is that we've reached kind of the high watermark, right? And so that instead of being able to go a lot further, the ROI of additional investment in personalization and micro-segmenting is on the decline. It's going to be going down. And therefore, it's really a rebalancing rather than a retreat with more emphasis, more investment, uh, and more ROI, frankly, from marketers investing in creative, in content, in brand, in storytelling. So it's, it's a rebalancing, not a retreat. But, but I, will, I will share that when I you know, was doing some background research on this and digging into some of the um, reports, for example, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the Evergage state of personalization. You know, they're a MarTech vendor, very successful their yearly um, stats have become, you know, something of a go-to. You dig into that, and um, even though just about everyone says they're doing personalization, only about 30% feel that they're doing right, according to the last year. Only 13% feel, quote, very confident about their strategy. And then when you look at the lift chart, the biggest one, the most common answer is 1% to 10% lift. That's not a whole lot of lift for something that we've been going at for over 20 years. And talking about throwing even more tech at AI and machine learning and, and all those sorts of things, right? Exactly, exactly. So again, not that we're retreating, targeting, relevance is good. It's just that we're kind of, it's going to get harder to squeeze more blood from this stone, Logan. <laughs> yeah, uh, I love that. So Andrew, you talked a little bit about not retreating away from here, but taking the level of personalization that we can do that allows us for good targeting and relevant messages. And what you're advocating for is then using that to, to bolster our creative so that it is... Uh, we lean into better better storytelling that are targeted and relevant, but not down to the one-to-one level necessarily. Tell us a little bit about that balance and kind of what that looks like and maybe where you've seen it done well recently. Sure. Well, I think, first of all, let's remember that creative has always mattered, right? I mean, in the last... Uh, let's, in a little over two decades, we've we, we've gotten so focused on data-driven marketing, and that was that was good. You know, when the world started going digital, all of a sudden marketers had data. We were no longer stuck in that old world of you know I know half my marketing is wasted, just not which half. You know, so so that's all good, and we've been um, 
pursuing that. But creative has always mattered. Um, if you think about what has impact, what ads have impact on you? Like, if you want to, can you remember any advertising that, you know, Logan, that just kind of naturally you remember and had an impact on you off the top of your head? Man, that's a, that's a really good question. You know, actually one that I have cited uh, offline chatting with people that I, it, it didn't necessarily have a huge impact on me, but I thought it, that it was really well done because it spoke to the realities that I know are true as a parent. Uh-huh. So it was actually the local children's hospital or the children's hospital network here in Colorado. And it, it cut from child to child and said, I need a smaller needle. I need, you know, this and that. And it spoke about the nuances of um, hospital care for children versus adults. We're, we're not the same as adults. And all these kids kept saying it in different ways. And that just really resonated with me as a parent. And those are the sorts of things Things that when I'm thinking about, okay, uh, unfortunately, when we have to go for medical care, especially for the kids, it's it's stressful. It's even more stressful right now. This was pre-COVID and everything. Yeah. And I still thought, man, they, they, they really spoke to the situation that I know to be true. Now, they didn't say, hey, your, your nine-year-old daughter's name is da-da-da-da-da. It didn't become creepy, but it was relevant. It was a good storytelling. And so to me, that's kind of an example of, I, I think, what you're talking about here. Yeah. That might be the best example, actually, that I've had in these conversations. It was that story. It was the creative, the images of the children resonated with you. And that's exactly the point. No one remembers some highly personalized ad, right? You remember the ads that have great creative storytelling, things like that. Now, that's always been true, but it's even true you know, in the digital age. I um, saw a Facebook Marketing Sciences webinar last month when they were talking about um, these topics, and they cited Nielsen research that even for online and mobile ads, uh, 56% of ad performance uh, was, was based on the creative not some targeting, not channel, things like that. So it's always been true. It's even more true now. And I, th- I think one thing that's happening is that a really interesting development is, so after so many years of, of, of MarTech focusing on targeting, personalization, data, we now see MarTech focusing on the creative side. So you mentioned one time, you know, kind of targeting it, things like that. Uh, now that we've got, you know, all this online data, how can we use that to better test creative concepts, to figure out that and get data-driven insight into the creative process, which is, is pretty new. And then the other interesting sort of um, way, you know, MarTech is starting to impact the creative side of the house is to help creative teams meet this surging demand for content that was created by online channels, by the need to come up with 15 different versions of a creative for different segments, versions for testing, versions for localization, different sizes for online ads. This put a mountain of content demand on the creative team that we work with. And really, I think was one reason why quality, how can you match the quality level when you're trying to do all that? So that's, that's, that's why you get this kind of digital sameness feel, right? Well, now, now technology is getting to the point where if you think about that ad campaign, you really have got one core creative concept. And then the other 99 variations they're like 5% different, size slightly different. Maybe one thing has changed for a test. Those are limited enough creative dimensions that automation can start to help. So now we're starting to develop tools for creative automation that take care of that portfolio of tweaks that are needed to, to creatives and allowing, A, that, that, that surging demand to be met, 
but without completely knackering our creative teams and leaving them room to focus on storytelling, great creative, like that children's hospital ad that you mentioned. Yeah, that's a really great way to put it, Andrew. If we think about this for marketing teams that are hearing this and they say, okay, based on this example, this really makes sense. Now, what what can we start to do to basically follow this framework of, okay, we, we know the demographic, we know the target that we're going after, we understand the story that we want to tell, we want to create a something that 90% of which is going to stay the same, but there's a five to 10% variance. Where do you suggest teams that don't necessarily have the tech in place to kind of automate all of that, but how do they build a framework of, these are the five things that we need to think about of the five to 10% variable that we might change in maybe 10 different iterations here so that they're following this framework of not trying to change everything, their creative team really focuses on telling a core great story, but then they are able to apply the automation and the, the, the A-B testing to the different aspects in a way that is actually efficient and doesn't have to go back to the drawing board every time. Yeah, that's a really interesting question, Logan. And, and I think that's still getting figured out. But I, I've, I've, I'll share two observations from what I've seen. Uh, the first is, some of Binder's customers who are, who are doing well here have put a lot of the burden of creating versions in the more downstream consumers of the content. So for example, the digital teams, the social media advertising teams are more responsible uh, for making those numerous variations. They're not putting that burden on the core creative team. So that's uh, one kind of organizational dimension. And then I think the other one is... Now that we've got platforms, you know, with like such as, you know, social media, you know, Facebook, their ad platforms allow uh, the data about creative performance to much more seamlessly flow upstream and to maybe allow uh, some overall testing to look at what are the, the aspects of creative that actually have the most room to impact performance. So in other words, maybe we can use um, the social media platforms, the online pl- ad platforms to help us understand what are the two out of the 10 variables we could work on that really move the needle from a creative resonance perspective. Yeah. Are, are in the customers that you work with and the other marketing teams you talk to, Andrew, are there any recurring themes that you see in this this lever, this variable, more often is having a bigger effect when we pull this lever versus this one, meaning you know location, targeting, this type of variable in the creative. Are you seeing any trends there right now? I, I think one trend just might be on an increasing focus on video, right? So, so overall ad spend, video is the fastest growing part of online ad spend. And it seems that that is a better place to invest storytelling and brand, right? As well as you still got to be able to vary that. That's very important. But if you just think of the nature, how much of a story can you tell with static ads versus video? So we see more attention being paid to create, to video as a medium, as a content type. So, so not quite the same as what you asked as far as kind of which of these dimensions, but that, that's just one thing that kind of jumps out as the growing importance of video. And it, it's one, because that's, consumers prefer it, but it's also, I think, a medium that better supports quality 
creative quality content. It, it, it's got a higher bar, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. And changing up some of those variables in a different call to action or a different opening. If you have the, again, the 90% that isn't going to change in that video, again, the downstream digital and social teams that have some video capabilities can play around with that as as they take the core of what the creative team has has provided. So I think it fits into that that organizational recommendation that you were exactly. making earlier. And it's something we're playing with, re- playing around with right now. We've started to do a lot more video content, both organically, but also in paid social. So for instance, with this show, B2B Growth, we will take a 20 second to two minute clip of the, the punchiest segment and use that as organic LinkedIn content through our evangelists here on the team on LinkedIn. But what we're also doing is, you know, retargeting folks that have hit our site or uh, fit a, our audience on Facebook and using those short video clips to promote the podcast so that we're using those ads to drive people to our pillar piece of content and playing with a few variables there. So that's kind of how it's playing playing out for us here at Sweetfish as, as a small team based on what you're talking about, Andrew. Yeah, that's, that's neat. And, and you guys do it really well. You've touched on, I think, one actually additional dimension that I think's really interesting and I think might be worth the audience kind of hearing about as they, as they think through where they'll be making investments in coming years. And, and so you touched on you know, Facebook as the platform that you're steering uh, video down to. And, and I think the fourth kind of interesting thing about this, you know, have we meet, reached a, a high watermark in, in investment and personalization and micro-segmenting, is the role being played by the online duopoly of Google and Facebook, right? They, they're responsible for such a, a large amount of the ad traffic. Now, B2B audiences, LinkedIn's part of there also. And I think you could argue Amazon for some product selling. But I think at the end of the day, when you look forward, that unless a business is the scale of a Walmart or a Capital One, Google and Facebook are going to be doing the majority of the heavy lifting when it comes to really targeting and, and personalizing uh, these ads. They've got the data, a scary amount of data on all consumers. They have the data scientists and the algorithms. And increasingly, they're flexing their muscles over the ad tech value chain, right? You can no longer, um, with video ads, you can't have dynamic ad assembly, which is something that third-party ad tech vendors can do for static images. But as video grows, they're not allowed to do that. Um, Google getting rid of you know, uh, uh, third-party cookies, is another example. So you're, you're wise to be using LinkedIn, Facebook, and I think increasingly, they'll be able to do a lot of this for marketers. It will not make sense for marketers to slice their target segments into a thousand little micro segments and try to find those 20 individuals across social media that fit each of those segments. Performance is much better. Let Google figure it out. Let Facebook figure it out. And increasingly, I think you see the lift is better when um, these platforms are given maximum latitude to find the right sort of targets. Interesting. Uh, it's really interesting take there, Andrew. Uh, I love uh, the way that you've kind of unpacked the the data that you've looked at, both from you know the analyst side, the buyer side, the brand side. You know, we started there and talking about some tweaks that uh, marketers can make, both organizationally and the way that they approach their creative. Uh, and then finally, you know, who do you let do the targeting? How do you how do you actually go out and, and test that? So to me, we've kind of brought it full circle 
people there. Uh, if there's anything else that uh, that you'd like to share with listeners today that that you think would would help them as they as they take this and think, okay, what what can we do this week? What can we do next week as we take what's been shared today? Any final thoughts for folks? Well, ironically, coming from a uh, Martech person, I think just don't believe the hype, right? When it comes to, you know, marketing vendors, we create a lot of uh, momentum around, you know, technology and what can be done, but just, you got to keep it where, you know, keep that over here and think hard about your own business, about building your own brand and um, don't get caught up in fear of missing out, I think is one thing that I, I try to do for myself at least. And then another little just interesting thing to keep in mind that may be some guidance around personalization, micro-targeting. And I don't know where I heard this. I'd love to attribute this, but just think to yourself, what's the experience you're looking for when you walk into a Cornell store? And you know that neighborhood store that knows you, what's the experience that's good versus creepy with them? And that's usually a pretty good um, yardstick to use when thinking through, you know, which per- amount of personalization should we do? Because clearly consumers have told us what we can do is not always what we should do. I love that. That That's great advice. It's great parenting advice. It's great marketing <laughs> advice right there, Andrew. A, a solid note to end the show on today. Well, thank you so much for being our guest. Andrew, if anybody listening to this would like to ask some follow-up questions on the topic today or just stay connected with you as a fellow uh, B2B marketing vet, what's the best way for them to reach out? Well, it's always easy to find me at, at Andrew J. Holly, H-A-L-L-Y on Twitter. You can follow us on the binder.com blog as well. And then love connecting on LinkedIn. I love it. Andrew, thank you so much for being on the show today. Here's to hoping uh, some of those uh, worthwhile hobbies get, uh, get some more time in the weeks ahead, man. Thanks kindly, Logan. Is the decision maker for your product or service a B2B marketer? Are you looking to reach those buyers through the medium of podcasting? Consider becoming a co-host of B2B Growth. This show is consistently ranked as a top 100 podcast in the marketing category of Apple Podcasts, and the show gets more than 130,000 downloads each month. We've already done the work of building the audience, so you can focus on delivering incredible content to our listeners. If you're interested, email logan at sweetfishmedia.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.